Welcome to the Advent Sermons and Conversations podcast. This is the conversation half. We'll be talking about what to do after the call. I'm Deanne. I'm Kevin. I'm Miriam. I'm Pastor Danielle. So in Pastor Gary's sermon, he even said this, he has kind of three main points about uh, what he was talking about around God's kingdom and God's love. The first thing was talking about storytelling and how storytelling has been used in the Hebrew tradition, in the gospel, and even now, uh, particularly around communion. Since communion was Jesus and the disciples celebrating Passover, and Passover in then and now in the Jewish community is the um, remembering and telling the story of their exodus from Egypt. And so this is a condensing of time and space uh, around the communion of All Saints as we are celebrating All Saints Sunday. He was also talking about how what saves us is not our works, but God's grace, a very Lutheran thing to say. Uh, And finally, he ends with kind of the idea and imagery of God's kingdom in this grace and in this saving is this uh, land and place where we live with God free of sin and death and fear and pain and inequality. I love the the image of a table as the foundation for this sermon and for thinking about communion because it's so relatable. I mean, we're sitting around a table talking right now, and I think you know, even though this first communion happened uh, thousands of years ago, we we still gather around the table and break bread in our daily lives today. Like I, the first thing I picture is like Thanksgiving. When I think about people breaking bread and, and gathered around the table, but communion in particular, while it, it adheres to this image it's also very different than than thanksgiving right like because it's thanksgiving typically is your family or your friends and and people you know it's this insular unit and this this table it means this communion table means so much more i think that's kind of what what i want to get into in this conversation and what the the sermon really highlighted for me is is what does this communion table really mean. And in terms of how it's connected to storytelling, the the thing that really jumped out at me is the expansiveness of the story. I think Pastor Gary did a great job of really visualizing. There was a lot of great imagery in this, but the one that really hit me was how this act of communion that Jesus initiates, that it's connected to the story of the Jewish people. So it reaches far back for them. But then Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me. And we, we still repeat those words today. So it comes all the way forward to the, to the present, that we're part of the story now. We're remembering it and we're living it. And I think the expansiveness of that is amazing to me. I don't know how that, that hit you guys. But for me, it was like, wow. It really kind of like places... Um places us in this continuum that's still that started way back then and still carries through today. Um, and, and yeah, the images, I mean, it was like, I was imagining a table, Thanksgiving table where you're always squeezing in one more seat, like where you should, you know, you're always happy to like shove one more place setting in 
that should kind of be the heart of it, you know? Mm -hmm. And because Jesus promised to show up, it's not just a remembrance. It's like, it's something that's constantly happening. You know, it's something we remember, but it's also something we're actively participating in, which is a little mind bending and kind of cool. Yeah, I remember uh, I was talking to one of my friends who's of more the evangelical bent. So we were um, discussing like various parts of services and church and that kind of stuff. Uh, She was talking specifically about prayer, but about the feeling that acknowledging that God is not only real, but is here and is present and the power in that. And it kept, I don't know, it was, us Lutherans aren't very loud people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we, Traditionally. We're traditions, we're traditional based. We have our liturgy, we know the words, but still how to have that very um, kind of deep feeling and deep knowledge that God is here and God is present in this bread and wine and in this space. It was a nice reminder to kind of like pause and take a minute and and really consider what is happening when you walk up to communion, you know, mm-hmm. that it's yeah. not just an act that you're going through. It's not just like motions that you're doing, which it easily can be, which a husband for me, you know, it's mm-hmm. so easy to walk up and you do the thing and you know, you stand here and you take the bread. And, but um, it was nice to slow down and kind of be reminded in this way through the sermon, like, oh yeah, something is really happening here. Um, and like giving it the space that kind of like quieting your heart and mind to like take that moment in. Yeah. I think, I think it can, it can very easily feel like a routine. It can feel that way. And I think it can look that way to people looking from the outside who don't like, I to- I totally understand that communion can seem weird and absurd to someone like that we just like get in this single file and this like assembly line of like take your bread take your wine and and so I get that it, it can look that way and then but if yeah it's really if you look at the scripture when and you have great preaching like Pastor Gary's today that brings to life what the meaning is there and what we believe is happening that's when it, it takes on this new yeah this this new meaning and to me like an, a, a cr- critical part piece of understanding that is that what's what's happening in that moment is not just what your eyes see I think like that I think that's that's critical like he pastor Gary mentioned that this like this spending of time where, where all the saints are present in this communion and where Jesus is present. And so kind of, yeah, in, embedded in that is, is a belief that there's more here than like if you're just looking on than what you're seeing. And that's pretty cool. Yeah, that, 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 you're, that there's more here, that you're part of this broader community, this much broader community, you know, the whole... <clears throat> the whole church and all the saints. And, and that's something that I really like about the way we do communion here, that it's really emphasized every week. This is God's table. Like this is God's show. And, and it is his invitation. And as a result, like 
uh, that invitation goes to everyone, you know, it's his invitation Mm -hmm. and, and, um, we are not the ones, you know, those of us who are handing out the assembly line of bread or whatever, we are not the ones to say, no, you can't be here. Like it is God's, it is God's show. And he, and, and we're, we're just showing up. Yeah. Yeah. And all are invited and all are invited. And it's really important to, to reemphasize that because I think, um, that message can get lost or can get twisted or, you know, distorted and can make people feel excluded or othered. And that's, that was never the point. That's like the antithesis of the idea of communion. Yeah. Of what Jesus set, set forth. Yeah. Yeah. And I, yeah. And I love, I also love that articulation of this is, this is God's table. This is Jesus sharing this communion with us. It's, it's not us. And therefore everyone is invited because I, I having being familiar with the gospels, like I can see that in the way in Jesus's ministry, in the way that Jesus is reaching out to, to the stranger. Like I, I, I picture it in my head and to me it's like, okay, every person throughout the gospel that I see Jesus reaching out to, like that's who's, that's who is invited to the table for communion. Mm-hmm. These, these people that are all, you know, ignored or cast out in the societies that they exist in. Yeah. Sinners, right? You know? Like, yeah. Yeah. People who are imperfect. Unsavory characters. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They're, it, they're invited to this, this table. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's all of us. Yeah, and therefore, that's... yeah, and therefore we are. I am not because I earned it or I'm perfect, but because I'm just like I'm ever everyone else and the invitation is for everyone. And if it was up to us to earn it, we're all we're all unsavory characters. Yeah, you know, yeah. every one of us. Um and that there was something else that Pastor Gary said, just a phrasing that he used, which was that we're all citizens of God's kingdom. And I thought that was a cool way to put it because it's accurate, but also citizens isn't a word that we maybe typically associate with religion or with the religious communities. But, you know, it's, it's a word that is more political or more legal and it can be kind of weaponized to make, again, to make people feel excluded and othered, but that's not how it works in God's kingdom that we, you know, we're all citizens of it. Yeah. I think he picked that word to to highlight that that contrast of how to almost take back that word citizen that is used for exclusivity and place it in terms of God's kingdom where it's about inclusivity. Yeah. And that word really st- stood out because of that. What does it mean to think of the all people as as citizens as belonging? in this one kingdom as opposed to drawing lines. Yeah. Which kind of ties into what his second point, God's grace covers all of us, even though we are unworthy of of it. And God invites us all to this feast, um, communion as well as like the afterlife. Uh, but people must be held to account. Um, and so it's kind of this kind of, not balance, but it's like, yes, there's God's grace and God's love and the importance of forgiveness. 
Um, but it's also God isn't just saying I love all people. God's saying I love the outcasts. Like the last shall be first. And in this kind of radical turning over of God's kingdom, I think too often we can kind of simplify God's grace or God's love to be very nice and everything's good and it's fine, but it's still, it's it's specifically destroying the injustice and inequality and raising up people. And I think that's just, Pastor Gary said it way better than I am saying it right now, or it is, love and there won't be pain or inequality um but that's because god's lifting people up um and i think it's important and we see this in the gospel of who god goes to and who god talks to is the outcasts and that kind of stuff and so it's that's not an optional part of the gospel and i guess part of the reason that was really sticking with me was because um we had the adult faith formation talking about uh, the Dalit Christians or the untouchables in uh, India and kind of their relationship to the Christian church in that the caste system, while started in Hindu Hinduism, was still being brought into the church and was still meaning that people were being tr- treated unequally within the church based on this kind of outside thing. So it's kind of that... Pastor Gary was talking about the promise of God in God's kingdom is that will be no more. Yeah, so this this table, the communion table, is God's table. And God invites everyone. You know, we we don't get to choose who's on the invitation. We're getting the invitation, same as everyone else. And so to me, that's what makes this communion table completely different mm-hmm. and but it also means the challenge for us is yay we got an invitation to the communion table but if you want to to sit at that table means sitting at the table with everyone else all the other saints and sinners all the people of the world mm-hmm. and are you comfortable with sharing the table with them and we see points in history where the church has not lived that out the way that God intended, the way that Jesus directed, unfortunately, and, and not God, but people have created barriers. That's what I see with the, the Dalai Christian situation in India. And I really do believe like, you know, to, I was also at the, the conversation about this and I think it was apt that Hephzibah said, you know, sometimes like, the Christian church came into a larger culture and a caste system that was so powerful that it seeped into the Christian theology. Mm -hmm. And so like a part of me understands why it happened, if that makes sense. Like in that historical context, I just think it takes time to change the thinking around that. But the big piece of, this new Dalit theology is destroying that or, or beginning to create a, a table where there aren't, where everyone is equal. So like one specific thing 
that is a practice at some Christian churches in India is that, um, that really made me sad is that the, the lowest caste, the people in the lowest caste at a Christian church would be allowed to commune last because it was believed that if they went before the, any, if they went before people of a higher caste that they would taint the cup, the cup of wine or the bread. And that, yeah, that, I mean, I just, I, I'm not in those shoes, but trying to place myself in them, I just imagine that being so like psychologically damaging that, that people are telling you that you're like infectiously lower, that like, that somehow this beautiful gift that God gives that you can ruin it by going first. That's, I don't, I think it's clear in Pastor Gary's sermon and in the actions of Jesus that, that that's not the intention of communion. That's such a frustrating thing about human nature. You know, here, in, I mean, here in this country, we are also really good at trying to keep people out, you know, trying to keep people who aren't like us or aren't some idealized version of what one political party or another thinks um, it means to be an American. You know, we're, we're just so good at doing the opposite of, of God's will for like Mm -hmm. for us and for this gift. And the the reading from Isaiah, just there's a part of it that I really liked. It's talking, it's introducing the idea that God is making this, Rich, this feast of rich food for all people of well-aged wine and marrow and all of this. And, oh, it goes on to say that God will, will destroy this cat, this shroud that is cast over all people, this sheet that is spread over all nations. And I thought that was, um, really, again, kind of an image, you know, if you imagine like this shroud, this thing that like covers dead bodies cast over all of us, like, you know, shrouding our perception and shrouding our understanding of the word and of how we're supposed to treat each other. You know, God comes in with this feast and gets rid of that shroud. And we see that all of us are here around this table that he set with wine and rich food and et cetera. Yeah. Like, like life is being connected with each other and seeing the, the humanity like that, that brings us alive and we're almost some version of dead when we, don't see that reality of our connectedness. Yeah, the line that always sticks out for me is, God will wipe away the tears from all faces, which Mm. I also cried the drop of a hat, so that might be a little relatable. Mm. Um, But just kind of that very physical, like wiping away tears. And God, not just in the abstract, but like with hands and tissues or whatever. (laughs) Um, But that also that promise of kind of that, uh, what I thought Pastor Gary described better than I've ever heard before is what God's kingdom will look like and just the love and the holiness of that and just kind of the sense of peace it gave me in kind of what, not what we're working for because that's kind of the wrong version of it, but what's at the end, kind of the eternal rest. He just said it in such a like beautiful way that if you haven't listened to the sermon, go back and listen to it. Yeah, definitely. What strikes me in that image too is the the immediacy and intimacy 
like to, to wipe away those tears. I mean, just highlights that, that God comes to every person Mm -hmm. like immediately there. It's not just some people. It's not, God's not distant. And that, that reaching out and that amount of closeness is incredible to me. And I think that's what we experience in communion, mm-hmm. but it gives us the opportunity like communion. Typically, I mean, as I've seen it, it's not an individual act. It's a community act. So it enables us to experience that presence as community. There's something particularly powerful about that too, especially if everyone's really invited. That image of wiping away tears just makes me think of my parents, right? Falling and skinning your knee or being upset or being hurt. And, and even now, who do I want to call when I'm upset? You, I want to call my mom because <laughs> it's a lifetime of wiping away tears. And I think about that with my kids now when they're crying, what do I do? I don't tell them not to cry, but I wipe their faces and I hug them and and so that image of God doing the same thing is incredibly intimate mm-hmm. and incredibly powerful. Yeah. And the scripture from Revelation even says, you know, right before that, that the home of God is among mortals. He will dwell with them. You know, that's, that's, um, that's like a level of closeness that is really striking to imagine. That's incarnation. That's exactly, it's, it's incredibly intimate. Frighteningly so, in some ways. Mm-hmm. Kind of glad I'll be perfect by then. <laughs> like, God will make everything perfect. So. <laughs> so, check, you're set. I like, too, that you know, God doesn't say stop crying or that there's the acknowledgement of the presence of tears. People, people ask a lot, you know, of religious people, why, why is there suffering in the world? Why, if there there's a good and all powerful God. How, how is this allowed to happen? And I, I don't know. There's just something powerful to me about the image of God wiping away tears as opposed to making tears not exist. Like I, I think suffering is a, a part of life that we all experience and we see other people experience. And yet in that, and also in Jesus's walk on earth and death, like we see that God is with us in that suffering and that th- through death there is life and hope and all these things are coming into being. Actually, yeah. And that same instrument, yeah. I mean, tears, yes, denote suffering, but tears also denote healing. They can yeah. be incredibly cathartic. I've certainly wiped tears off my cheeks after just being overcome with laughter or something really joyful in life. So even this thing that can denote suffering and sorrow really is also a sign of, of life. Yeah. I get, I tend to get really, whenever I get sentimental, that's when I get, I get teary. Mm-hmm. And so for me, it's like, it's a sign that you care. So the exact same things that like can bring up, I guess, uncomfortable emotions are also like tell you what you love in life. And I don't, yeah. There's a lot more to it than a black and white, like happy, sad. So after, after the, in Revelation, after we hear about God wiping away every tear from every eye, he goes on, it goes on to say this. He says, see, I am making all things new. Write this for these words are trustworthy and true. 
which kind of rhymes, I just noticed. Um, that kind of gets into this sort of last segment of the sermon where it's really emphasized that God's law, that, you know, he's, he's the one who made things and he's the one who's making things new. His law really supersedes everything. You know, it supersedes human law, which especially... It supersedes human law, which really, you know, feels sometimes arbitrary or like it's changing all the time. So it's refreshing to think like God's law is the one that was there forever and will be there forever. And, you know, that law we see lived out in Jesus's life where he is reaching out to all of these people who aren't the traditional churchgoers of, of his day and and how we should be following that example and um, reaching out to the people who aren't told by society that they're worthy of God's love. You know, they are, and, and we all are. And sometimes that means reaching out to the people who are preaching a very different message. You know, it means making a space in your heart and at the table for people who are somehow twisting this message of just overwhelming love. And that can also mean, you know, Pastor Ye did did say this quite clearly, like holding people accountable, holding people in power accountable. Yeah, when I think about kind of the idea of people talking about bringing um, God's kingdom on earth or making God's kingdom on earth and kind of how we're continually trying to reach for that is the idea of kind of sometimes you have to destroy things here or bring things down that are here if they are holding up um, injustice or inequality in bringing those structures down for God's kingdom to be built or a mirror an incomplete mirror of God's kingdom to be built the danger of the shadow side of this conversation as I'm listening to us speak is I think about like, so many um, theocracies or 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 systems there's that, oh, we're based on God's law, are in fact some of the most oppressive and exclusionary out there, which are really, yeah. right, using using God's word to uphold your own power and your own way of the way the world should work because whatever that way is, it benefits you. Um, and, and how important it is for us when we talk about God's law superseding and God's love superseding human laws how important it is for us to be checking in with each other to say, hey, this is God's law, right? I'm not just making this mm-hmm. up. Right? Yeah. And, and who, who benefits from, from this action and what injustice is being overturned, what hatred is, be, is being rooted out, who is being welcomed to the table that was otherwise excluded. And so just to always be very careful because historically Christian churches and Christian political oligarchs have used the excuse of God's divine law to make the table smaller rather than bigger. Absolutely, absolutely. Which I don't know how you can read the gospel and do that. It makes no sense to me. I just can't wrap my head around it, but people do. Yeah. Yeah. Personally, I want to read more about this, but kind of the history of the church and how the church has been built or existed in the world and then interacted with the cultures it lives in or is a part of and how then ends up getting influenced or diluted by that or changed and it's kind of this tension of like 
and that's something I think about in my own theology is how much of what I believe do I believe because it's good for me versus it's actually true. Mm. And so, um, Pastor Danielle, one of the things you said in your our interview was the idea of preaching sermons that convict yourself and that idea of like, where is the where is the Bible convicting me? And where and in that kind of remembering the Bible's not always gonna be nice to me. It's not always gonna be easy, but trying to remember to be open to whatever it has to give. It's easy to believe in a faith that's comfortable for you mm-hmm. or that reflects your particular culture or skin color or you know way of being in the world or place in the world and it's much harder and i think more powerful to believe in something that challenges you the the idea of it never being easy is so important to remember and and also thinking about like theocracies you know human systems that have have claimed or aimed to like espouse god's will for earth I, this scripture from Revelation, again, it like points out, I feel like I'm reading it and and saying like, well, God's the only one who's going to do that. Like the new, the the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down from heaven, from God, you know, it's, it's never, we're humans by ourselves, we're never going to get to a point where it's like, oh, we've perfected the political system. We've, you know, that that's just, it says it very clearly. That's not going to happen. Like God's the one who's going to do that. And it would be easier if we were like, oh, yes, we have perfected it. Everything works. We have checks and balances and da-da-da, but we just won't without him. And and so if we ever get to a point where it's like, oh, it's easy. It's really easy for me to be a Christian. It's really easy. Like that, there's a falsehood there that we're not seeing. Mm. And yet knowing it's not going to be perfect, Luther used to always, not used to, used to always, Luther said, and now people always quote, Sin boldly and have faith more boldly still, knowing that anything we do isn't going to be perfect, but that shouldn't stop us from the doing of it in the best of our abilities and trusting God's grace really to work the rest out. So it was very clear in, in Pastor Gary's sermon, he was very much calling out uh, the horrific lies and anti-immigration rhetoric that is coming out of the White House right now and coming out of a lot of political pundits and saying, whoa, 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 whoa. This is not about whatever party you vote for. This is just about God's law being violated. We don't get to talk about other people like this. This is not who we are. This is not our story. If we are an Exodus people, if we have a God that loves and welcomes us, not because we are so great, but because God is amazing, then who are we to be saying such things about others? Who are we to be making judgments about who is worthy and who is not worthy? Who are we to be making arbitrary geopolitical statements about who people are when ultimately people are people are citizens of God's kingdom? People are beloved. People do belong and are worthy and valued. Yeah, that's where I think God's law transla- transcends human law. That's that citizenship, that belonging, that everyone is a citizen of God's kingdom. The lines that people try to draw aren't real. Jesus has already erased them. 
Like that law is so much simpler. It's like, it's like love and that's, you know, end of story. Which is so complicated. It's so much simpler when you say it, but to live it is so hard. It's easy for people to say and not do. And that's also where you get into like, how, how do you love people? What does that look like? And so many, yeah. Like how the applications of it all unfold in every aspect of life is very tricky for our simple little minds to know. <laughs> and love is something that when you have somebody who's in a place and able to reciprocate that love and accept that love, it's such a beautiful thing. And even then it has hiccups and it's difficult. Now, now we throw into the mix folks who have very different cultural understandings, political understandings, um, people who maybe don't believe they're worthy of love and therefore actively push it away or very prickly in how it's engaged. People who, you know, if the table is really that big and everybody is at the table, then I'm going to be sitting next to Brett Kavanaugh. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right? I'm going to be sitting next to fill in the blank, whoever it is that is as I, I am, whoever I am really struggling with, whoever uh, is, is I feel is, is hurting me or attacking me or people that I love. They're at the table too. Yeah. That's hard love. It's I'm, I'm fine. Welcoming the stranger, the immigrant, the refugee, come on down. Yeah sitting at the table with folks in power, it's harder for me to imagine. And yet the table's that big too. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's, it's crazy to me that the, the same grace that gives Brett Kavanaugh a seat at the table gives me a seat at the table and gives the immigrant a seat at the table. And it's like, it's not my choice. And like the, uh, being the invitation to the communion table that's offered to me is the same as everyone else. So I don't get to say who's in or who's out. And I'm, you know, in imperfect in my own way. So that to me, that's just so powerful that we, yeah. It's so but important. It's challenging. It's, it's so important. Yeah. To, to check ourselves and make sure that while we are, um, calling for, love and justice and equality and understanding for the underdog say we are maybe not necessarily being loving and understanding and extending grace to, um, the people who we, you know, we see harming the underdog, but that's also a part of the charge, which is extremely hard and not very palatable. When I have conversations with friends about this, about that, that, I don't know, those tricky distinctions with love. It's like, where do you put your foot down? If you're trying to love everybody, what does that look like? And for me, and I don't know if I'm going to be able to articulate this right, but it looks like, like never backing down that the person being left out is a citizen in God's kingdom and has a seat on the table, but doing that in a way that whoever you're asserting that to, you're not turning away their seat either. If that makes sense. Like I, like I, I just believe that there is a way to never back down on the, the, the worthiness and belonging of one person or group of people. Like, I think you can do that without, inflicting violence or offending 
maybe not offending, but doing inflicting violence or harm to a person who might disagree. They're, they're different. Um, it's, it's like, it's not an attacking. It's a, it's a like not backing down, I guess. And like asserting another human being's worth and belonging. I think it can get complicated, especially once we get into identity politics type of thing, because like, it's not an equal playing field on if something's a belief versus it actually affects their day-to-day life. And so it's the kind of thing where I think of so many LGBT kids who are growing up in just really conservative churches and my heart hurts so much for them. And like, (laughs) I know it's not technically my church, but it's like, I. I want to keep them safe and I want to ha- give them a church home where it's like that kind of idea or that kind of rhetoric is not welcome. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But how do you, and so then it's, does that end up excluding people who believe that kind of rhetoric? Which is, it's, I know it's a dangerous line, but then it's also like, I want to give people a place where they'll feel protected. Um. So it's, yeah. It's, so, so it's so interesting that's what you bring up. So then the ELCA made the decision to uh, ordain people who are gay and in publicly accountable relationships because it was made before marriage was legal in many states, and so that's the language we used. There was this concept of bound conscience that was brought in because there were so many churches that said individual congregations that said, no, 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 we can't do that, we can't do that. See, it's here in Scripture, it's here in Scripture, it's here in Scripture. And the powers that be and the way it worked out were so anxious about there being a major rift in the church, and we did lose a number of churches, uh, that there, there would be such a big rift in the church. They said, well, here's this bound conscience. This is our statement, and we believe this is true, but we recognize that you are bound by your conscience just as we are uh, in this And so we have to figure out ways to exist together. Now, it's been 10 years, and now the call is to say, oh, bound conscience, that was a really great in-between way. No, that's not enough. We can't say that anymore. We need to say, this is how we understand scripture. This is how we read what we read. This is how we understand God's call. Therefore, we stand with our LGBTQIA plus sisters and brothers and siblings. This is what is important to us. And, And it's it's what matters to God. And if you can't get behind that, we're very sorry, but this is, this is the truth. And so there's a big push to get rid of that concept of bound conscience now to say, that's great and all, but people are dying. Mm-hmm. People are dying. My gosh, the trans community has higher rates of, of homicide and suicide. And, and where are these kind of horrible bigotries and prejudices being being laid they're they're being if not being planted in 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 conservative churches they're certainly being given room to root and blossom so yeah sometimes love does look like telling somebody no and it is yeah i feel like it's in so many other ways where it's like yes we will welcome people all people including racists but that does not mean your beliefs are correct and we will vocally say that those are incorrect and unholy and walk with you to become not racist right as we work together yeah i'm so i'm an i'm like a naturally go with the flow 
easygoing, non-confrontational person, but one on a very personal level, like one important life lesson for me has been by not asserting truth to someone who is wrong in a way that would harm others. Like me not assert, being assertive in that case will harm, can harm others. Like it does harm. And that idea of like a responsibility to others to say, this is, this is truth to, yeah, to someone else or to a group of people or people in power. Like I think, it's, it's certainly not easy. And I think in particular, like if anyone's listening to this, that's younger. I think when you're a young person, it's really not easy, but it's what we're called to do as the church, I think. And yeah. And I think it's also important that it shouldn't just fall on those who are affected by it. It should also kind of the idea of allyship and companionship is very important is that I should be calling out any of my white family members who are saying something racist or something like that and saying like that's not okay because i don't risk anything by that a good metric when you talk about truth is can you imagine it coming out of the mouth of jesus i think i say that all the time Mm -hmm. i do but it's just so true (laughs) can you imagine it coming out of the mouth of jesus and if you can't hold your tongue that's probably not of god yeah that is a good metric. I'm going to use that. It's a convicting metric. <laughs> it's a very convicting metric. Right? It's a very convicting metric. And in all saints, we are reminded, we are all sinners who are made saints by God's incredible grace because we're not getting it right all the time. But that doesn't keep us from trying to live into the call that, that Jesus has laid out in discipleship. Speaking of the call, what are you all going to do differently this week? Mine's pretty easy, so I'll start. I'm voting. November 6th. If you haven't done earlier absentee voting, get your voting on. Um, I think this week I might try and hold my tongue a bit more after considering whether anything I'm going to say would come out of Jesus' mouth. (laughs) I'm going to try to speak more clearly. And stand up, uh, and in fact, to look and say, what, what does my, what does my companionship, my allyship look like, and to make one this week tangible action, whether that's some kind of financial gift or time or service or speech piece, whatever, whatever it might be. I just have to work out what that looks like right now, where I'm being called to, to engage that conversation. So as we've kept coming back to, we, we're all citizens in God's kingdom. We're all saints and sinners. We're at the same table. So I think this week in my interactions, whether it's in the workplace here at Advent, whether it's with my friends at home at my apartment, that I will be mindful to make sure that that publicly and in front of other people that I am honoring and, and asserting the humanity of all people and making space at, at any table or conversation for everyone. And I, yeah, and I really think, I'm, I hope, but I think that that can play out practically. Well, because while it's not, 
it doesn't have to be a radical interaction or I do think we encounter people all the time in our life in New York where certain people are there, but more invisible or they aren't like treated the same way as people who dress like you or people who are your friends or people. And, and so it's small, but I'm wondering what, what does it look like to really be aware of every, every one of God's children in, in the room or in the space and to say something to acknowledge that to yourself and to the people around you. A really great spiritual practice, just to keep that in mind and to engage that, yeah. is if you are riding the subway, to just silently pray for each person hmm. on the subway, to go and look at their faces and very simply, God, may your spirit rest on them today and guide their path, whatever that might be. Yeah. It definitely changes the way that. you engage the world in a day. And if you want a whole bunch of people from a whole bunch of different walks of life in one small space and you're there anyway. The subway car is an easy place. It really lends itself. You don't itself. have anything better to do. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I would like to try that. I, I, I just think it's those, some for a lot of people, can be small things that start to shift perceptions. So, yeah. Thank you for listening. You can find us online at adventnyc.org. You can email us at podcast at adventnyc.org or join our Facebook group, Advent Sermons and Conversations, to join in the discussion. Our services are 9 a.m. and 11 a.m. in English and 12.30 p.m. in Spanish at 93rd and Broadway.